And now, coming at you from the Five Star Physique Studio in Knoxville, Tennessee, this is The Drop Set with your host, Darren Starr. Ah, what up, everybody, and welcome to episode 178 of The Drop Set. I'm your host, Darren Starr. Look at this. We had an episode on Friday. We're back here on Monday. As I record this, it is 10.53 a.m. Eastern Time here in what is at least temporarily sunny Knoxville, Tennessee. Thanks for joining me here. Um, quick reminder, um, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, and as I always say, if you're not, why are you listening? Uh Wherever you can, leave a review. If it's on iTunes, great. If you're on Spotify, eh, I wish you could leave a review, but they don't let you for some reason. It's annoying. Um, But wherever you listen to this podcast, if they allow you, leave a review. Give it a good rating. Give me a good comment, something like that. Talk it up a little bit. Share it amongst your friends. Post this episode. Share it on social media. Tag me, um, Instagram, at Darren underscore star is the best place to do that. So um, we're going to do a little Q&A grab bag here. I uh, put out the call for some questions on Instagram. I got some good ones. I got some not so good ones. Y'all know who you are. Um, not helpful. <laughs> oh boy. Some people, some people just enjoy being smart asses, I think. Um, so we're going to do a little Q and a here. Um, what have I been up to over the weekend since Friday? Anything, anything much? Um, no, a lot of sarcastic welcome back comments for the podcast. I can take that in stride. That's fair. Um, did a workout on Saturday, took a rest day on Sunday, slept a good bit yesterday, actually. Pretty low-key, pretty chill. Um, we had, uh, I don't know if you've been watching the news, Tennessee made national news because of our weather. Um, Nashville, in particular, uh, they get all the attention in Tennessee. Uh, it's probably how people in like upstate New York feel about New York City. It's like whenever anybody talks about New York, they're really talking about the city and they're like, there's a whole rest of the state here, you know? It's a, it's not quite like that here, but, you know, it's like everybody knows Nashville and it's like, you know, Tennessee, you know, Knoxville can go fuck itself, basically, is kind of the approach that everybody tends to take. But that's okay. That's okay. We'll be the, uh, we'll be the wart on Tennessee's ass. I'm okay with that. Um, but Nashville, they got hit really hard with some floods. Um, crazy rains, like seven to nine inches of rain in southern Nashville. So uh, we didn't get that. We got a lot. Like, you know, it didn't ever get to the point where it felt like our house was going to float away. But there was definitely like a river running down the street. <laughs> So, which it does whenever there's a heavy rain. It wasn't anything super crazy. There were thunder and lightning kind of freaked out the dogs a little bit, but everyone's for the most part. Okay. Um, we have a, uh, close friend who there was, uh, some flooding last year and it actually got in her house, um, here in town. Um, and we were like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. You know, what didn't hit us hardly at all here. We got barely any standing water, like out in our yard out back or anything. It actually got in her house and she had to have a whole bunch of work done. She had to get new floors put in and all this stuff. And so she's on high alert now, like stressing it and, um, her street flooded, um, but not, uh, the waters did not make it in the house at least. So they've got some definite like drainage issues in her neighborhood. It's a problem. It's a problem. So, uh, all good for the most part though. So, uh, questions, what do we have here? We have a, a handful of things that I wanted to address here. So we're just going to kind of jump all around all over the map here and talk about stuff. Um, as a reminder, there is a call-in number for this podcast as well. So if, the, if somebody who's listening right now and be like, what 
Yes, I have a, a voicemail box set up where you can call in and you can leave a message, and I will uh, I will play it here, and then uh, we can we can talk about whatever it is that, that brings up. So um, the number is. <laughs> Man, I don't remember. Oh, God. I got to go to my website and see what it is. Uh, I used to have it memorized. It's been so long since I've done one of these. I don't remember what the number is. But you know it's coming, right? So get your pencil and paper. Get ready to write this down. It is. Here we go. Uh, Now, it's ringing a bell now. Yeah. 865-518-2974. That is, full disclosure, my Google Voice uh, voicemail number. So it uh, doesn't ring. It goes straight to voicemail. So you don't have to worry about me answering the phone or anything like that. You're not going to get stuck in some awkward conversation where I'm like, hello, hello. And you've got this like rehearsed question that you're ready to ask. You're like, uh, hang up. Um, that's not going to happen. So I don't answer the phone. Ask anybody. So <laughs> ask my parents. Last time my parents called and I actually answered the phone was probably like, I don't know, 2004. Something like that. So let's uh, let's do some questions here. You can call in 865-518-2974. Go to thedropset.com. That is an actual website that exists on the internet. Uh, the phone number is pasted right there as well. So no excuses. If you remember the name of this podcast, you can find the phone number. Call in, leave a message. Um, the first question, this uh, uh, is... I don't have the specific uh, verbiage on this, but uh, a client was asking in their check-in, um, you know, when should I do X, Y, and Z? Like, you know, what's the best time to lift? What's the best time to do cardio? That wasn't the exact question, but it's something that comes up a lot. And I have an answer on that that uh, is a little nebulous. Uh, it's always easiest if you can answer that question. Like, well, 2 p.m. is the best time to do anything, obviously, duh. And then uh, that just raises the question, well, what if I'm at work at 2 p.m.? Well, you need to get a different job, clearly, because your job is not compatible with bodybuilding. Now, there are some coaches that take that kind of hardline approach. And there are people who follow that hardline approach and will shift their schedule around and move heaven and earth and do whatever they have to do, even if it's not reasonable, in order to make something like that work. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Plenty of people have had successful transformations. They've won shows. They've turned pro just lifting whenever they can whenever it's convenient for them. That's the thing is you have to go when it is convenient for you. And that just, we've got to define what convenient really means here. Convenient means we're really talking about practicality is what it comes down to. So for me, um, I have a lot of freedom and flexibility because I work from home. And now a lot of people do these days. Um, So you've got a little bit more freedom and flexibility unless working from home, you're still expected to do certain things at certain times. The way that my job as a coach is structured is I do, I, I have, you know, check-ins that I do every day, but they're not at specific times. So I can make my own schedule to some extent. So, um, I've always gotten used to just lifting in the morning. Um, and so now I'm playing around with that a little bit and trying some different things. There's a certain thing like, you know, my wife gets home from, she's a teacher. She gets home from school at around three thirty, four o'clock. I like to be kind of wrapped up with stuff by then so that I can, you know, share the rest of the day with her. And so I don't want to have to be doing my workout and, you know, doing a whole bunch of client stuff, et cetera. Um, have a whole bunch of things left over after she's home. It's like, you know, just makes things a little bit nicer that way. It's a quality of life thing. Uh, so it's gotta be at some time before then I always do better in my workouts if I'm focused and I don't have a whole lot of work hanging over my head. So therefore I'm not going to like wake up 
and eat and then go lift having done no work. I would much rather like have almost all of my check-ins for the day done and then go lift because I can have a relatively clear head. I'm like, all right, so I go lift here and when I'm done, I just got a little bit of cleanup to do and, you know, you know, pick up some, some late stragglers who were late sending their check-ins in and uh, that's it. So the, the practicality of it for me is, you know, I've got a lot of flexibility. I can do it pretty much whenever, but I also know just based on how my brain works, when it's going to feel the most productive. Um, so now I will get up and I will do fasted cardio. I'll do that first thing in the morning. I have no problems with that just because I'll typically wake up a little earlier and, uh, it's something where you just grind it out. You don't necessarily really have to have your head in the game. You know, you just, you know, put on some music, put on a show on Netflix or something, pedal, pedal, pedal on your bike. You know, it's in the garage. So it's not like you have to go anywhere. That's the thing you got to make cardio as accessible and efficient as you possibly can. If you put yourself in a position where every time you do a cardio session, you've got to go to the gym. That's the only option. Honestly, I don't know how you do it. I really don't. Like, get a get a freaking spin bike for your house or a treadmill or an elliptical. Get something. I mean, if you're going to do bodybuilding or you're serious about a body transformation, get a piece of cardio equipment that you can have at home. A spin bike is relatively cheap. They don't take up a lot of space. That's the solution. Do it. Just you know, make your life easier. You will, you will thank yourself a hundred times over. I promise you. Make it happen. Make it happen. So, um practical concerns really rule the day here. Um, and so, uh, the client that brought this up, Bernard, um, you know, he, he mentioned because professionally he's a, he's a police officer. And so he was saying like he, he was working out, um, after work and he started working out before work this week. And he said like, I am so much more energized in the morning because I'm not run down after a long ass day at work. Like that could be a very real thing. A lot of people, because he, he he noticed his performance was way up in the morning. I'd say that's the opposite of what most people would experience. Usually, your performance is going to be down a little bit in the morning, just because you know you're not as awake. Maybe you've got one meal in your system as opposed to four or five. Maybe if you lift later in the day. Um, so, but that then again, if your job wears you down that much, then yeah, hit the weights while you're fresh for sure. Um, so when you do something like that, like a shift that he made, there are practical concerns there as well. Like you've got to adjust your sleep schedule. You've got to get up earlier. You probably got to go to bed earlier. So you got to shift things around. You got to have the flexibility to do that. You know, it's got to be a schedule that's compatible with the other people in your household and your general lifestyle, but, um, shift it around. So the practical considerations are everything here. As far as like, somebody's like, okay, now in a perfect world, when would you have me do it? If I could do it at any time at all. And that's where my 2 p.m. answer comes in, just because, you know, at that point, you've got a few meals in you. Uh, you are uh, not so worn down from the day uh, that uh, you're going to be tired, uh, but you're not so far, so um, close to having just woken up that you're still groggy. You know, it's midday. Um, you know, get some pre-workout in you, go to town. That, that's ideal. For cardio, I love fasted cardio. Um, I'm not as big of a fan of post-workout cardio. Um, like if you have to do one cardio session, let's say you, we need to do five sessions a week or something like that. We're starting out prep, five sessions a week. Um, make it a separate occasion from your lift. If you separate the two, you will get more out of it um, because at that point you are quote-unquote exercising 
twice a day as opposed to once. And there is a post-workout metabolic boost that happens after you exercise, whether that's cardio or lifting. So you experience that twice as opposed to just once. If you do a lift and then cardio post-workout, you're just experiencing it once. So it's going to be more productive if you break it up into multiple sessions. So that will always be my answer. Again, practical concerns may win out over that. And so you can't necessarily always do the optimal thing. If it gets to the point where you have to do cardio two-a-days, what I will always say is do cardio fasted, lift at 2 p.m., and then come back and hit your other cardio session at 6. That's three workouts. That probably means three showers. That's a pain in the old ass right there. So that's one of those things where I'm like, that's ideal, but how many people have I worked with that have actually done that and separated out into three sessions? Not very many. Not very. At that point, you're probably going to do fasted, lift, and then post-workout cardio. So um, so the win doesn't matter so much. It's got to um, be practical, but you've got to have performance considerations to take into account. And the way that I'm doing it today I'm recording this podcast now because I'm going to eat again after this and then I'm going to go and then I'm going to lift after that. Why? Because it was 30 degrees when I woke up and it's going to be 60 this afternoon and I lift in my garage and I hate freezing my ass off during my workout. So I'm going to push it off until it warms up a little bit and I'm going to be a much happier camper. It's leg day. I'm going to warm up pretty quick, but I hate going out in the garage and being freezing just to start. So, um, that sucks. So yeah, I'm going to work out a little later today and it's supposed to warm up as the week goes on. So it should be less of a concern, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, so next question here, uh, I was just having a, uh, conversation with myself. Should I put in time markers here? I feel like I probably should. So this will be what about 13 minutes and 45 seconds in and go. Okay. So, um, Anthony had the question on his check-in. Um, he had he said he had some significant uh, timing issues between meals on a couple of days due to work situations, and so he had a, a three-meal stretch, meals two, three, and four, that he just kind of divvied up into two meals instead, uh, were a little larger portions. Still hit all the macros, etc. And his question is: Is that a bad thing? Should I try to avoid that, or does it really not matter as long as you're getting the macros in? So, and the sub question in there is: How important is timing between meals? So these are all good questions. Um, how important is timing between meals? That's um, one of those things. I mean, th these are basically the same question here. It's not that important, but it's not totally irrelevant at the same time. You, you know, when you ask me a question like that, you're always going to get an answer that's in the gray territory in the middle, right? I mean, you've come to expect that. We've been doing this for 178 episodes. If you don't know that by now, you clearly have not been paying attention. It's always in the gray with me. Always, always. Um, so basically what it comes down to is protein assimilation. Like if you've got meals two, three, and four, and let's say, you know, as a guy, there's 50 grams of protein in each of those meals and you take that 150 grams and now you split it up into two. Now you've got 75 grams. Does your body know what to do with that? Well, there's research that says, yeah, it does. And then there's research that says not really. And I tend to like to play it safe and go with the, eh, probably not really, or at least it's approaching that threshold where it's maybe not as useful as it could be. Um, for protein synthesis, I mean, your body can only, you know, only make use of so much protein at once. Otherwise, we just be like, okay, well, I'm going to have 600 grams of protein and I'm going to build a whole lot more muscle that way. Your body's like, whoa, buddy, hold on. No, I don't know what to do with all that. So um, there's a threshold. What is that threshold? I don't know. I usually say for guys, it's about 50. For women, it's about 35 grams per meal, something like that. Uh, those are kind of made up numbers, but those are the guidelines that I try to keep things within for the most part. Um, 
to to make sure that you know if this is a significant issue like i said just to be conservative we're playing it safe and making sure that we always fall within the boundaries there so um that's why you know if somebody's like you know i'm, I'm just going to do intermittent fasting i'm just going to have two big meals a day this is the thing that makes that fall apart um and makes that not work so as a guy okay you're going to have two meals that each have 125 grams of protein in it first of all good luck you're going to feel like ass and balls it's going to be terrible um, and uh, I, I really don't think that's going to be useful. Your body's not going to know what to do with that much. At that point, doesn't matter if you're getting in protein or not. You're just getting in extra calories at that point. So, which you need, but you know, the whole idea is, you know, with a diet like this, we go higher protein, meaning higher bioavailable, higher assimilatable, if that's the word protein, um, which means kind of, you know, titrating your intake throughout the day and avoiding those giant bombs where you're going to have a lot of it that's really not used in the most efficient way possible. So yeah, keeping things smaller, um, is a good idea. Now for Anthony and his situation here, um, the other thing that I told him is hit the numbers. That's the most important thing. Um, just try not to make a habit out of, uh, really, you know, consolidating things into fewer meals. Um, the whole thing about bodybuilders eating smaller, more frequent meals, there's a lot of reason why that conventional wisdom carries on to this day. One of the only practical reasons for doing it, one of the only legit reasons that isn't completely founded in bro science is the protein assimilation issue. So you've, you've got to you know, figure out what the cap is and then try not to go above that. And like I said, my artificially constructed cap is around 50 grams for guys, about 35 for women on average. There, there can be some flexibility there, but that's, uh, that's typically where I'm at. So how crucial is time in between meals? Not necessarily super crucial. Um, you know, uh, you want to avoid having meals that are maybe only 30 minutes apart. At that point, it's basically just one big meal. Um, and if you have meals that are seven hours apart, um, okay, you're going to be hungry and miserable in between those meals. That sucks. But also, if you're supposed to get in six meals a day and you've got a seven-hour gap between two of them, how are you going to get the others in without creating 30-minute gaps somewhere else? So there are, once again, practical limitations to how much that doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't really matter until you take it to the extreme. Um, like I always tell people as well, like, okay, we've got, you know, foods that we consider free. They're free up to a point. And when you start loading up a dump truck of cucumbers onto your plate, it's no longer free. So there's, again, practical limitations to everything. So uh, next up, what do we have here? Um, <laughs> Mark on Instagram asked, uh, what about online diet breaks, two weeks of maintenance calories? How is that beneficial? It really depends on, um, hold on. I got a, I got a set of marker here. I forgot where are we at here. That was about 1836 in. Okay. All right. So, um, depends on where you're coming from. So, um, if you're doing a cut, you're at a deficit dietary break for two weeks during a deficit. Pfft. Hell no. You ever hear about somebody in the middle of prep who just decides to F off on their diet for two weeks? No, there's a reason for that. It's because you lose all the momentum and everything comes grinding to a halt. Um, now, if you are at a caloric surplus, you're in a growth phase, there could be something to it. Um, it just kind of depends. Um, you'll typically know if it's necessary. Sometimes a break where you, know, you bring things down to maintenance calories can be helpful if you know, typically you'll feel it. Like if your system feels like it's 
Oh God, food. Ugh. You, you might need to bring things down. I don't know about two weeks. Two weeks is pretty excessive. Like I, I was up against that wall not too long ago. Um, you know, about a month ago. I didn't realize that's what it was at the time. I thought I had, you know, like, okay, is there something going on here? Do I have a burst appendix or am I just super constipated or what's going on? And it turns out what it was, I mean, or am I having some kind of a reaction to food? You know, am I, is there something in my diet that suddenly, even though this stuff has all been the same, that suddenly my system doesn't agree with anymore? Um, turns out what it was is my body was just sick of processing food. And so I took a weekend where I just skipped a bunch of meals. I just didn't eat a whole lot. And, you know, I ate when I was hungry. And then when I was hungry, I ate enough just to make me not hungry. And when you get to that point, it doesn't take much. Like I probably had, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred calories on those two days, which is down from about, you know, thirty eight hundred to four thousand where I was before, something in that range. Um, and all it took was those two days, and then my system was like magically like poof. Nothing significant happened. Um, like there wasn't any kind of like epic bowel movements or anything like that. Yeah, we're gonna talk about this. Yeah. Here's the it's bodybuilding. It's all about what goes on in your system, right? And what what your body's doing. So you gotta be able to talk about this stuff with at least some semblance of a straight face. Not necessarily totally a straight face. Because I mean come on. It, it's still kind of funny. Let's just let's be honest here. Um but there wasn't like any significant event or anything like that that happened. But suddenly I just felt so much better. It took two days two days. It was Saturday, Sunday. By Monday, I woke up and I was starving. I'm like, whoa, what's this? I haven't felt like this in a while. And ever since then, it's been all systems go. So now I know. Um, like, okay, that is how we approach that. If I start to feel that way again, I know I just slough off on my intake for a couple days. Shouldn't take much. Um, so two weeks, I don't know that two weeks is necessary, but you know, it could be. I could envision a scenario where um, you know, maybe I felt so bad that I had to do that for two weeks. But usually it's to solve a problem. It's not something that you do to like, you know, you're not going to do that to bust through a plateau necessarily. Um, it might not be a terrible strategy for that, but I have not in my experience had much success with that actually working in any real way. Um, if you're trying to bust through a plateau on, on a growth phase, typically need to eat more or redefine the way that you're training or define an intensity a little bit and find ways to step it up on that front. So, um, a, a two week diet break seems pretty drastic. Um, I don't know that I would say there's never a, a case for it, but, mm, I'd have to I'd have to see some pretty compelling evidence or or hear about a really really uh, a situation that's really kind of out there in order to kind of get on board with that. So, um, good question though. Good question. So, now Scott is asking here. Um, let's see. We're we're gonna go rogue. We're we're going we're going illegal talk here. Everybody, watch out. Um, is asking gear doses in relation to going higher with just two compounds versus lower at four plus compounds. That is typically like how you want the seesaw to kind of play out. Like the way that I've always approached it is you should really be looking at things in terms of your total dose. Um, and ballpark, there's a certain threshold that I find it unproductive to go over. Um, and that threshold is different for everybody. Um, and of course, there are certain ratios that you can play around with and different philosophies here. Like some people keep the philosophy of, you know, keep your testosterone relatively low, but bring everything else up much higher. Never been one for that. Um, I've always felt, and there's, you know, decades of anecdotal evidence supporting this, um, that you're 
test dosage should be probably higher than anything else, or at least as high as anything else. So, um, and the other thing to keep in mind about this, and one thing that I always tell people, and I had this conversation with somebody last week about, you know, he asked for my opinion about SARMs. Um, I said, no, I'm not a big fan. We've talked about that here before, just because they aren't, they aren't tested in humans. Um, and everybody says, oh, they don't have side effects. I'm like, well, you can't really prove that. <laughs> you don't know. And you also can't test these compounds for purity um, versus anabolics, which they uh, you know, exist in. SARM, SARMs exist in a legal gray area in that they're illegal for human consumption, which is why they're sold as research chemicals. Okay, so don't confuse yourself into thinking that like, oh, I'm, I'm taking the morally safe path here. I'm like, you're skirting around the law either way um, versus anabolics are illegal, um, but they are purchased underground illegally. Okay, unless you have a prescription for it, in which case, hey, more power to you. Uh, but uh Anabolic compounds have been in circulation for decades, and we know what they are. They've all been clinically tested to death, um, not necessarily at the doses that bodybuilders like to use. Um, but again, there's decades of anecdotal evidence behind them that uh, we, we have a sense of how they react and how they respond. So um, I know that's not going to put that issue to bed or anything like that, but that's my philosophy on it. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of SARMs. Uh, if you're going to go one way or the other, like, you know, anabolics are going to, they're going to hit harder. They're going to do more positive stuff, um, at not necessarily a greater risk other than maybe your legal liability. Um, which I always tell people that's a judgment call that you have to make. And if it's one that you're not comfortable, uh, if it's a risk you're not comfortable taking more power to you, uh, no judgment for me whatsoever on that. Um, so it typically, you know, if you're going to run, what I find about this one, and the, here, here's kind of the tricky thing, is that you get to a point where it's like, let's say, you know, you don't want to run any more than 1,300 milligrams total cycle dose. So that would put you at like, oh, let me try some math here, like 550 milligrams testosterone, 450 milligrams equipoise, 300 milligrams trend, something like that. A fairly aggressive cycle right there. 1300 milligrams. So then you could say, all right, well, I don't want to run, I don't want to run three compounds, but let me run two at a, uh, at a similar total dose. So now you're looking at like 800 tests, 500 EQ, that 800 test, a lot of people are going to have issues at that dose. So, um, it, I, I would discourage from, from cycle planning that way, but more about like find a, a, a total dose over time that your body tends to tolerate well and then try to set that as some kind of like a faux threshold that you don't go over. So if you bring in additional compounds, you're pulling some stuff down and you're not just trying to throw like more shit into your system. Uh, but, uh, you're trying to get, uh, a little bit of the benefits of this, some of the benefits of this, but at a slightly lower dose, it's like, it, it's like the principle behind Sustanon, realistically. Sustanon is a blend of multiple variants of testosterone. But, you know, it's Sustanon 250, meaning it's, it's 250 milligrams per milliliter, which is a standard concentration. It's not necessary, or you can get it at 300, I know, but you're not going to find like Sustanon 600, where it's 600 milligrams per because we just throw more stuff in there and have at it. You know, no, 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 it doesn't really work that way. So there's... Uh, a logical way that you can kind of think through this and that you don't want to necessarily go above a certain threshold, but don't feel compelled to stay up at that threshold just because you're using fewer compounds, if that makes sense. So uh, I'm not really sure that it does, but uh, I, I, I tried. <laughs> 
Uh, next one. So where are we at here? 27-16. All right. I'm putting in these markers here. So um, Joe off Instagram says, uh, what are the benefits from doing a superset? You see, this is something I can sink my teeth into. That is a really easy, straightforward question. Um, it depends. <laughs> of course it does, you asshole. It always depends. Um, so... Benefits of doing a superset, um, it depends on how the superset's constructed. If you're trying to work antagonistic muscle groups, muscle groups like a bicep, tricep superset, what you're doing there is you're making your workout more efficient. You've got an arm day, and rather than doing a bicep block and then a tricep block, you're doing them both concurrently, and so you're going to get through the session faster. Um, efficiency is uh, one good reason to perform a superset. If you're using the same muscle group, like let's say you're going to do a barbell curl and then superset that with a dumbbell curl, um, what you're looking to do here is overload the muscle in a unique way. So rather than say, we're going to do double the reps with a barbell curl, we're going to change a variable here. We're actually going to do the same number of reps with a barbell curl, but then you know, at half of the total rep number, let's say it's 10 and 10, we're going to switch to a different exercise and do 10 reps there instead. So the idea being you, know, you should be able to flow seamlessly from one exercise to the next. If it takes you 20, 30 seconds to switch movements, you're not doing a superset. You're doing two exercises back-to-back with short rest. Superset should be seamless, like you know, you're doing rep 8, 9, 10, drop the weight, pick up the new thing, 1, 2, the same thing with the drop set. It's the idea is there's no added rest or minimal added rest, like just a beat or two, maybe nothing more than that. Um, so the idea is by shaking up a variable, um, you're changing the way that your brain approaches it and your brain is feeling like it gets a little bit of a f- fresh start. You start your count over. There's a psychological benefit. You feel like there's this added degree of freshness that comes in, even though the muscle is super fatigued. So you know, you could talk about like, well, you're just trying to force force overload into the muscle. Yeah, but there are psychological reasons why that works. And so that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Um, it's like starting something fresh. You feel like you've just finished something. Now you're moving on to the next thing rather than a set that drags on for 100 reps, which, you know, I've certainly programmed that stuff before and it has its place. A superset can be a little bit more productive. Um, now, the other thing is, you know, you've got to really understand how to do proper weight selection for a superset because if it's like 10 reps here and then 10 reps there, you know, you've got to understand that, you know, if a movement's coming in on the back end of a superset like that, like in our barbell curl, dumbbell curl answer, um, you're not going to move the same weight if it's the second movement in a superset than if you were just doing straight sets with that movement as well. So maybe you're accustomed to doing 40 pound dumbbells for curls. Well, after doing 10 reps pre-exhausting basically with a barbell curl, you're not going to hit 40s for 10. And if you do, you were sandbagging it before. So um, that might be a good way to kind of open your eyes and help you realize something like that if that's the case. Um, The other thing, and this again gets into the psychology of it a little bit, um, is I always think there is a little something missing um, that really is unavoidable. Anybody who trains by themselves or works from a workout program on a sheet of paper, um, there's a, a, a slight disadvantage that you have there where you always know what's coming next. There's no surprise. You can look at the sheet of paper. You know what's coming up next. You can be like, oh, this is a superset. Okay. And then subconsciously, it's going to change how you approach your weight selection here. You're going to be like, okay, well, typically I do a barbell curl with 90 pounds, but it's a superset. I've got to do that. out, So I'm going to do 70. You might not even have that conversation with yourself, but subconsciously, a lot of people are just going to go there automatically anyway versus 
if I was training somebody in a gym, I said, here's a barbell curl. We're going to do this for 90 pounds for 10 reps. Okay, cool. And you're like grinding out. You're leaving everything on the gym floor there. You're giving me everything you got. You barely squeak out that 10th rep. And then I'm like, boom, here's some 25 pound dumbbells. Give me some curls with these now. Go, go, go. You didn't see that coming. You didn't save anything for that. So that's going to mess you up hardcore in a good way. That's the best way to approach it is think about it that way. So you've got to force yourself to be an asshole to yourself. You've got to kick your own ass a little bit the way that a trainer would kick your ass if they didn't care how much you were suffering right now. To be clear, when I say suffering, I'm talking about like your muscles are screaming for relief, not like, oh my God, my elbow's killing me. You know, that's a different kind of thing entirely. Um, So the more of that physical discomfort that you can push through, the more you're going to grow. That's what it comes down to. And when you're training by yourself, you're always at a little bit of a disadvantage because you always know what's coming next and you're always going to tip the scales towards being a little less uncomfortable. And so I think the, the best thing that you can do if you don't have the ability to train with a partner that is smart enough to recognize that because let's be clear, most workout partners are not going to help you in this regard. You know, you're at a certain level, they're at a certain level and they're not going to read you intuitively the way that a really good trainer would. And you know, most people don't have the opportunity to work out with a great trainer every day. They're in the gym either. Um, most people don't have the opportunity to work out with a very mediocre trainer every day. They're in the gym. So it really, as a bodybuilder, it's incumbent upon you to be willing to go the extra mile to kick your own butt on a regular basis. And that just means kind of identifying those spots where maybe without really thinking about it too much, you're like, Hey, I'm holding back here and just be a little bit more aggressive about it. Shorten up those rest periods so that it's not really a rest period between exercises and a superset. You know what I mean? So, um, so there's a lot of benefits to doing a superset. There's a lot of ways to do it wrong. So I wanted to touch on that a little bit and see if that helps at least to some extent. So, um, next up, where are we at here? We're at 33, 16. All right, cool. This is uh, Alex from Instagram. Thanks, Alex. Um, thoughts on half reps for hypertrophy? Yeah, great. Same, same potential pitfall here. So by half reps, we're talking about like partial reps. So, um, And I'm also going to assume that this is following a set of full reps. So if you're just coming at an exercise like, I'm going to do half reps. I'm like, no, 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 no. Always start with full reps. Um, as your, your default choice, there are very, very, very few circumstances where you should ever do anything other than that. Like a set full range of motion is what it is. It's full range of motion for a reason. It's the entire range of motion that a muscle and a joint can be put through. There's benefits at all points in that range of motion. So do it. Um, there are strategic ways to, to, shake that up a little bit. Like if you're doing 21s for curls or something like that, you're, you're kind of favoring certain points of the range of motion, but you're always doing full reps at some point too. It's really a way to make it a little bit more difficult. It's like, okay, partials here, partials there. Now full reps, you know, you've pre-exhausted at these partial range of motions. Now do the full reps. So, um, I'm going to make the assumption for this question that we're talking about doing partial reps as kind of like a burnout after a set of full reps. Yes, Absolutely. Really, really good. Depends on the exercise. Like for squats, no, don't do that. Leg press, eh, probably not a good idea. Um, curls, leg extensions, leg curls, lateral raises, um, maybe even um, like a shoulder press. Maybe some, uh, you know, I find like rows and pull downs to be of dubious uh, benefit on this just because it's often, you know, the unless you're doing the bottom half of the range of motion, like full contraction to half release, that kind of thing, that can be useful. Um, but, uh, certain things like don't do half rep squats. That's just dumb. <laughs> so, 
you know, if you do a full set of squats and then you feel like you can do some half rep squats on top of that, your full, your full set sucked. That's all there is to it. You should be pretty much gassed after a, a set of full rep squats. So um, the f- benefit being here, um, you're trying to get a little bit more out of the muscle. You're trying to, you know, bleed just a little bit more out of it, a little bit more contractile performance out of it. And sometimes, you know, if you hit failure at full reps, you can still do some partials and bang it out. The problem is, once again, just like with supersets, if you know it's coming, there's a tendency to want to leave a little gas in the tank. Like, okay, here's my 10 full reps, and i got to save a little because i got 10 partials coming up here. The whole point is that your tank is already empty. You can't do any more full reps. You have hit failure, and then you do partials from there. And those partials should look pretty ugly. Let's be honest about that, too. So um, the, the, the pitfall to watch out for there is not going all out on your full reps because if you go if you go 80 percent on your full reps and then you go you know you do some partials on top of that no more benefit than if you've just gone a little bit harder on your full reps and really emptied the tank there so but if you can do both and you can convince yourself to push harder at a higher weight for all the reps like you know you've really got to say like you know okay let's say your target's 10 reps and then we're doing you know 10 uh, partials to failure well your target's 10 reps. No, it's not. It's really failure. Let's be honest here. So don't stop at 10. Stop when you're done. Um, and that's a number that probably should be greater than 10. If you can force those extra few reps out and really get to the point where you are toast and the only way to continue is with partials, that's when they're effective. And part of going from like being an intermediate lifter to an advanced lifter in my book is being able to identify when you've crossed that line and when you need to go there and can you approach failure and can you get there on a regular basis? You don't need to do it all the time, but you need to be able to flirt with that line pretty regularly for sure. So yeah, partial reps. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, you, you gotta know, uh, how to pick your battles on that one too, and how to recognize when you're pulling back. So, um, good question though. Good question. And then, uh, Jonathan here, uh, has a couple of good questions as well. So, uh, and this is what 37, 22. All right, cool. So, um, Jonathan asks, uh, should you train to failure in a caloric deficit? So kind of alluded to that before. Yes, absolutely. To what extent does the body fix uh, muscle micro tears in a cut? So, I mean, that's still there. I mean, protein synthesis does that, you know, uh, so you need, you need protein to initiate that process. Uh, but, uh, you know, so that that's why it, in a deficit, I never drop protein intake. Sometimes I'll actually increase it so it makes up a little larger percentage of the calories. But should you go to failure in a cut? Yeah. I mean, basically, like, watch any competitor, any high-level competitor um, who uh, is, you know, in, in prep mode and watch the way they train. The weights might be a little lighter in some cases, in some cases not. Um, but they're pushing. I mean, the, the only way you, you build a physique like that and you sustain and, uh, and keep your muscle on a deficit is through training intensity. And so you've got to get really, really accustomed to pushing that failure line. Absolutely. So um, protein is responsible for, um, for recovery more than anything else. So even if your carbs are at a little bit of a deficit, eh, not a big deal. Uh, you know, typically during a cut, your, your carb intake is just there to replenish glycogen stores to some extent. Um, so that's why we want it pre and post workout, but uh, assuming that it's going to be able to carry the recovery load, you know, several hours after a lift, um, or through a rest day or something like that, typically your carbs are going to be low enough that that's not the case. Um, protein intake is where it's at for that. So, um, and then his other question is, uh, found any advantages to using a home gym setup and will I continue to use it? after COVID? 
Hell yeah, I will. Um, at this point, I've invested too much in it not to. So, <laughs> um, the main advantages I have used, uh, I have, I have noticed, is that the commute is really, really short. Um, I like that. I like a short commute. Uh, and there is a commute. I've got to get my car out of the garage. Um, so it takes me about three seconds to get to the gym. Um, that's a big one. Um, I can listen to whatever music I want. Um, when I trained at, you know, I'm going to call them out because they're assholes. When I trained at Armor Gym here in town on uh, Lexington Avenue, uh, the music was just so loud that I had my Bluetooth headphones on. They were pretty good and I could blast the hell out of whatever and still hear their music, um, coming through. Uh, so that was not just annoying. That was actually like a, a hearing, uh, injury waiting to happen, (laughs) which, you know, as a musician, my ears are kind of important to me. So I'm not going to blast my music at unsafe levels just to drown out the garbage they're playing in the gym. Um, uh, they also, when I went in to cancel my membership, uh, they made fun of me for wearing a mask. So I'm like, screw this place. You know what? You guys suck. <laughs> like, in case you haven't noticed, there is a global pandemic and uh, shut up. <laughs> uh, no patience for that at all. Um, so I don't have to put up with uh, crappy music. I don't have to put up with uh, people. Um, I'm not sure if you've gotten this from any of the previous 177 episodes, but I'm not typically a huge fan of people. Uh, so that that's a, a significant part of it. Um, you know, if there's somebody in, in my gym that's doing something annoying and distracting, at this point, it's me. I got nobody to blame but myself. Um, if I'm distracted, I'm distracting myself. I'm not distracted by the guy who looks like he's doing some kind of Tarzan swing over on the cable crossover or whatever the hell he's trying to do. Um, it's just I feel like it's it's easier for me to get in the zone. Some days, some days it's not because at the same time it's my garage. There's no atmosphere in there. It's a place where I park cars. I got my workbench in there. Um, you know, it's you know there's not a lot. I got some lighting installed. I got a nice three foot by five foot mirror on wheels that I can roll around. So I've got that wherever I need it. Um, and for for you people at home, gyms, if you don't have lighting and a mirror somewhere, um, you got to fix that asap. That's one of the big things that helps make it uh, helps turn it into more of a a real gym feeling kind of place. It really is. So um, I would strongly strongly recommend that. And then just make sure you have the equipment you need. Like if I didn't have the stuff that I had, um, but if I had like a rack and barbell and dumbbells and that was it, I'd be like, get me back to the gym. But you know, I have a cable setup. I have um, two places where I can do a seated row or a lat pull down. Um, I can do cable crossovers. Um, I can do, you know, any kind of cable exercise that I need to. I've got a vertical leg press. I've got a regular leg press, 45 degree hack squat combo. I've got a leg extension seated leg curl machine. I've got a back extension machine because my spinal erectors suck. Um, and I've got a place where I can do standing and lying leg curls as well. So, uh, I've got a bench. I can do anything that I need to with dumbbells up to 90 pounds. I've got 800 pounds of plates. So, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Is there anything that I miss? Um, I do miss a good plate loaded, uh, chest press. Adduction and abduction machine would be nice. It's hard to find uh, one for residential use. That's like plate loaded. Really, really hard to find an adduction abduction machine. I did find one. It's like 800 bucks, but it's just got a huge footprint at the same time. Like I don't have room for that. So I'm pretty well tapped out. Um, 
Yeah, and I've got I've got a good selection of atta- attachments as well. I've got a few mag bar attachments. I've got a rope. I've got a couple of close grip handles, a couple of wide grip bars. You know, single handles. I'm I'm good to go with with pretty much everything that I need. There's a couple things that I miss every now and then, but it's not worth it for me. Um, all told, honestly, it's it's the people that turn me away from gyms, and I just I'd much rather I prefer like being in my own zone. And if you would have taken me back a year ago and told me that I'd be saying this stuff, I wouldn't believe you. Um, because I've always been like anti-home gym. I'm like, get me into a real gym. Get me into the uh, into a good atmosphere and environment. And the problem is, with the gyms that I've found around town, um, none of them have that. Like, I've had those gyms in the past where you walk in and there's an energy in there. It's like, yeah, good. Maybe it's just that I'm getting older. I don't know. But every gym that I walk into here in Knoxville, it's just immediately is like, I want to leave this place. Um, and that is not a good uh, reaction to have when you walk into a gym and you're supposed to be doing some serious work. You know, you've got to be in an atmosphere that energizes you and, or at least doesn't suck the energy out of you. And that's where I had been for a long time. And so right now the home gym is a little bit more neutral. It doesn't really jazz me up, but it doesn't really drag me down. And I can do some things to, um, keep it from dragging me down, uh, and, and help kind of, you know, push the atmosphere in a certain direction. Like, um, you know, basically just making it more of a gym space right now. It's like, Hey, here's my garage and workshop that I've crammed a gym into. Um, and so if I, if I restructure the space a little bit, do some things like clean some things up, maybe hang a banner on the wall, maybe add a second mirror somewhere. Um, and the one thing that I need to do is build a little, um, wall mount place where I can store all my, uh, all my cable attachments, um, cause right now they're just kind of sitting haphazard. And if I did that, I feel like it'd feel a bit more like a real gym, feel a little bit more like an official space and probably be a little bit more energizing when I get into it. So I don't know. That's, that's kind of where I'm at on that, but I don't have any intentions of going back to a gym. Uh, and to be clear also, like I, I've got some, some friends and some, uh, acquaintances who have kind of called me out for being a little bit of a hermit. And they're like, what are you so scared of? I'm like, I'm not scared of anything. Um, like that's not the point of this. The point of this is not to be scared. The point of it is you try and do your part to keep the virus from getting spread and killing people that you may not know that you're transmitting it to. Like that's the idea. If anything, I'm scared for other people, not for me. I'm not really worried about me. I also know that I'm careful enough that I don't need to worry about me. So, you know, if it was just me, I'd have no issues going back into a gym today. Honestly, I feel like I could do a good job because you know, I do a good job of kind of keeping my distance from everybody anyway. It's kind of like, you know, if it were an Olympic sport, I'd be a gold medalist at that. So I'm not really even concerned about like, you know, getting it and uh, transmitting it to someone else unknowingly. It's like, no, I'm not worried about that. At the same time, if I went into a gym, I would wear a mask because I honestly think that's the only responsible way that you can lift right now, realistically. Um, But, uh, for me, it's just more about like, I just don't want to go back. I, I don't. So I might at some point, um, you know, if I can find the right gym around town that has a couple of pieces of equipment that might make for, you know, slightly better leg day or something like that. Sure. I'd go back, but, uh, it's not something that I'm like super, super eager to do or anything like that. I just don't feel there's much of a need for it. I don't really feel like I'm missing out on much of anything right now, so I'm not going to sweat it. So great questions though, um, across the board from everybody. So, uh, Bernard, Anthony, Mark, Scott, Joe, Alex, Jonathan. Thank you.
appreciate it. You guys are the real heroes of today's podcast. So that's all I got. I'm going to sign off here. I'm going to eat. I'm going to lift. It's leg day. I got a big-ass leg day ahead of me. The last time I did this, it was four days of soreness that followed. So I got to try and match that today. It was a new workout last time. This week, it's going to be about not establishing the baselines, but trying to move up from that. So we got to make it hurt a little bit. So I appreciate everyone for listening. We'll be back oh, at some point in the future, uh, maybe Friday. I don't know. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, but if you've got any questions, you know the drill. You can uh, contact me through social media. Best um, would be to call and leave a voicemail, 865-518-2974.